Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Well, good morning, everybody. I apologize for the camera and the angle and the it doesn't look as good as it normally does. I I threw my back out on Thursday, so it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I'm on day five. I woke up today feeling significantly better than yesterday, but I'm still in a good bit of pain. Um, so I'm in my big comfy chair, <laughs> um, and it is what it is. I'm just thankful that I can do it. So um, anyways, happy B-sides. We are in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, so on two Mondays a month, I run a Bible study in Harford County, and for that study, I'm teaching through the gospel according to St. Matthew, and I've really enjoyed my time uh, in Matthew, and the home group's always so warm, uh, but particularly this Monday, I was driving home uh, from the study, study, and I was so built up and encouraged by our time together. Uh, Jan and Marie, Marine came in. Uh, they played, Jan played worship. It was wonderful. And the teaching turned out and the fellowship was sweet. And by the time I was on my way home, there was so many, so much more I wanted to share from our time together. Uh, so I knew that I wanted to continue Matthew 5 on Sunday. Uh, and so that's what we did. Uh, so our teaching is going to begin at verse 14. But before we hop in, I wanted to show you guys something that I think is uh, helpful here, and that's the be that's the structure of the Beatitudes. So let's let, let me bring you on over. So here is Matthew chapter five. Okay, and we're starting at verse two. So here's Matthew five, verse two, all the way down to Matthew five, verse twelve, uh, and this is this is eleven and twelve down here. <clears throat> And I want you to see the structure of the opening of Jesus' sermon. So Matthew 5, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, um, and, and you'll see here we have an A, B, A structure here. Uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we go all the way down to verse 10, We'll see, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have the same exact duplicated promise here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a duplication. Placing everything in the middle of that, in the middle, and all of the other blesseds, the, all the other beatitudes, the promises are different. They will be comforted, inherit the earth, shall be satisfied, shall receive mercy, shall see God, shall be called sons of God. So there's all of these promises. And the point is, is the way the Beatitudes are set up is they're capped. They're bookended by the kingdom of heaven. And everything is the character within the kingdom of heaven. So when you come to the Beatitudes, understand that it is all framed within the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those within the kingdom of heaven are the mourners. 
And of course, this is building off of a passage in Isaiah, and it's a mourning over sin. Uh, we shall be comforted. And then those within the kingdom of heaven are blessed and are the meek. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, that's a kingdom attitude. Uh, and then all the way down at verse 11 and, and 12 here, we have the, we have a conclusion and a summary, uh, summary, uh, beatitude. And so verse 11 is, blessed are you, A, if we go to the other A, rejoice and be glad in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. So we have an A, B, A, B structure here in verses 11 and 12. And so the way this works is the A's play off each other and the B's play off each other. So blessed are you. We're never told why we're blessed in the first day. Well, here we are. This is why we're blessed. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. The promise of the blessed here is the reward in heaven. And then the B's, so A, B, A, B. When others are blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So that's the first uh, B, the first section of persecution. And then Jesus frames it like this. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are persecuted on Jesus's account, we are entering into the line, uh, the same vein as the prophets who were persecuted b before us. Uh, and so the persecution is nothing new, but God's people are persecuted. And that, this is how the AB, uh, AB structure, uh, plays out here. <clears throat> Again, so as we, as we look at the structure of scripture, God frames it in a way that tells us things. He structures it in a way that helps us and benefits us and um, really brings clarity to the scripture. You know, when I, as a pastor, right, I sit down to preach a sermon, whether it's in Matthew 5, Revelation 14 this coming Sunday, which is turning out like it's going to be good. I'm excited anyways. Um, one of the things that I have to do is if I'm going to teach six verses, five verses, um, yes, I preach verse by verse, line by line, but there's also a sense that I get to put the emphasis where I want to put the emphasis. If I think verse 11 is stronger than verse 12, I can really preach verse 11, uh, based upon what I'm seeing. But if I start looking for the structure of scripture, the Holy Spirit has arraigned the text in such a way that he puts the emphasis where he wants the emphasis. And so the more I desire to be faithful to the scriptures, the more I look for those emphases, emphases and if that's the right word for that, uh, and then put it where the Spirit structures it. Uh, so again, I, I think if you're going to do a verse-by-verse -verse study or preaching of 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 the Bible, structure becomes so important. Because you start putting the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. Um, because you'll hear a lot of people say, you know, I, I grew up in Calvary chapels. Um, and so, you know, you'll do all of chapter five on a Sunday, then all of chapter six next Sunday, and then all of chapter seven. And the reality is you can't preach Matthew chapter five in any great depth <laughs> on us in 45 minutes. 
You know, you could spend 45 years on that chapter. Uh, and so as the pastor, you have to make the decision, where am I going to put my time? And you pick the things that you feel like you want to communicate. But again, if the structure is dictating how you deliver your message, um, again, you're putting the emphasis where, where God puts the emphasis. So I think, I think as far as verse by verse goes, and, and if you're studying the scriptures, you want to look for these structures and see what the Holy Spirit is essentially underlining or putting in bold for us. Um, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, very briefly, salt has a great significance to the Jewish people in that salt was added to every sacrifice that was offered at the temple. So all these different sacrifices we see in the Old Testament, all of them were seasoned with salt. In Numbers 18, 19, God says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord, for you, and for your offspring with you. So salt in the Old Testament was a sign of being in a covenantal relationship with God that you are his people. So Jesus calling these people salt is calling them as in a covenantal relationship with himself. Again, Jesus is making a new people in himself in the church. A people not of a specific ethnicity or circumcision, but a people through faith. So salt is connected to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And also, Jesus is not only calling these believers a, a people of his covenant, but he's also calling them a sacrifice. Since, again, salt is connected to the altar and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, uh, and this, this makes sense because those within the kingdom of God, we just read it, are to be persecuted like the Old Testament sacrifices. So there's this Old Testament coming into the new happening here. What is it? Uh, what's the saying? Uh, the new, the, the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, that, that all of these things that happen in the Old Testament are starting to come to life, to be brought into their climax, their fruition in the New Testament and go, aha, that's what this was for. But now also in this text, and more widely understood, uh, we also see that salt is a preserving agent. So in the first century, People did not have refrigerators. They didn't have vacuum-sealed bags. They had salt. Uh, and so if they, say, kill the fatted calf, uh, they would eat the fresh meat uh, that was caught, and anything that was not going to be eaten in that moment was salted to ensure that it didn't spoil. Uh, and so you leave raw meat out, uh, especially in the Middle East, it's going to turn hot. Uh, but if you, again, salt it, it will preserve. And, and this is what Jesus calls his people salt, a preserving agent to the world. And, and God's people preserve cultures from decaying and spoiling and going bad. And so the, the point is that those who live out the Beatitudes make the world a better place uh, as we're honest and as we're peacemakers and we strive for good. And this is good for all cultures and every households. And, and if I can 
tap into something, maybe... Uh, I'm going to tap into it anyways. This is one of the reasons, not, not the reason, but one of the reasons why we should want to evangelize to our neighbors and families. Because if salt makes things better, if our neighbor comes to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it makes our neighborhood better. Oh. Let me, uh, I better answer this real quick. Hey! Hey, Josh. Hey, you know, I'm in the middle, I'm, I'm actually live streamed right now. Is everything okay? All right, I'll call you back when I'm done. All right, love you. <laughs> <laughs> my dad called. They're watching my my six year old right now, and I want mm, he knows I'm filming, uh, which he didn't remember. I just wanted to make sure my kid was okay. Um, but uh, uh, preserving agent. Uh, so you know this is one of the reasons why we want our spouses to be saved. Uh, it'll make our marriages better. This is why we want our children saved. It'll put a better head on their shoulders. Uh, and so in in a sense of human survival uh human life um quality human quality of life uh the, the more that people around us accept the gospel the better they do and the better it impacts our world too uh so again the, the gospel the, the salt salting things makes makes everything better and so we should want to see people salted primarily because we want to see them saved uh, but also, it, it sets the world right, uh, better. Uh, verse 14. Let's keep reading here. <laughs> you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, Jesus moves, and I, I kind of... I went through this a little on Sunday. I wasn't planning on it, but I got so fired up. Jesus moves from the city to the house. Uh, and it, it's a silly point, but one we don't want to miss is that if your house is not lit up, it will not add to the glow of the city. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, he, he said here, household piety is the best of piety. If our light is not seen in the house, depend upon it, we have none. What Spurgeon means here is if you are not living faithfully in your own home, then your faithfulness does not amount to anything meaningful out of the home. You know, here, here's an example I had. I, I, I didn't share it on Sunday. I didn't plan on sharing any of this on Sunday, but boy, it came out. But something I, I, I didn't say was, for example, you know, you have people that come to church and they put on their church face. So they put on their church behavior. Uh, and they're nice, and they're friendly and agreeable. And believe me, I'm I'm happy that they're nice, friendly, and agreeable. Uh, but then they go home, and they yell at their wife. Or then they go home, and the wife says nasty things about her husband, and rolls her eyes, and you know jabs at him. And that means your light is dim, or unlit. Terrifying as that is. The light that illuminates the city of the church is the light that comes from your home. And so please hear me. You know, your first mission field is your house, <laughs> is your home. And if you want to do great things for God, if you want to be used by God, if you truly want to live a kingdom life, 
then start in your home. Uh, this is one of the things that strike me so strongly about that story in Exodus chapter 4. Remember, Moses is about to enter into Egypt, and then the Lord is coming to kill Moses. It's a very strange story when you're reading through Exodus. And then his wife Zipporah, uh, in order, saves Abraham's life by circumcising with a flint knife, oof, her two boys and throws the foreskins at his feet and says something, you're a husband of blood or a bridegroom of blood. I, I can't I'll recall it off the top of my head. But the point was, and the reason why God was going to kill Moses is because how could God lead the circumcised people of God if his own house wasn't circumcised? How could Moses lead God's people if he wasn't willing to lead his own house? And so again, even if your your spouse, your children, your family drives you crazy, that's your first mission field to glorify God in. And so if you want to be used publicly, you have to be used in, in, in your private chambers. You have to speak respectfully to those within your own home. Uh, and that's this today's text. Two two thoughts I have. One of the things we have to ask ourselves that I ask is why does Jesus move from salt to light? Like, why isn't this salt and sand? Why isn't this salt and water? Why is this salt and light? Well, as we said earlier, salt all through the Old Testament is connected with the altar, the place of sacrifice. And faithful Jewish people would have picked up on this. So the salt is connected to the temple altar, meaning our, our clue with this then. If Jesus starts us at the altar, that means we need to start thinking temple. That That's the clue where we should start to figure out where this light could come from. Why is Jesus connecting salt and light? Now, I want you to think about light and the temple. Was there a light at the temple? And the answer, of course, is yes. The holy place. It was in the holy place that stood the menorah, the holy lampstand of God. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 through 3, what is the church called? The lampstands. And they were placed where? In the holy place. And so if we put this all together, if the salt is the altar, then the light is the lampstand of the holy place. And here's the significance of this in the Old Testament. God brought the people through Moses to Mount Sinai, and it was there that, he, that they were instructed to build the tabernacle to worship God. But here is Jesus at a new mountain, and he's building a new tabernacle. But not one of wood and stone, but one of flesh. What does Jesus later call himself in the Gospel of Matthew? He calls himself the temple. Jesus is the new temple that is being commanded to be built on a new Sinai. The difference is, is that the, the temple, of course, is in Christ himself. And as, as we become one with him, as the church becomes incorporated in Christ, we then become part of the temple too. So the new tabernacle instructions here is not one of wood and stone. It's in the church. It's in him. So we are being given new instructions to build a new tabernacle on a new mountain through a new Moses in Matthew. But this time it's through God's people. And remember, what did Jesus say at communion? Take, eat, this is my body. We are now the temple of God.
Which is why in Acts chapter two, there when the when the, when the Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter two, it reads exactly like a temple dedication with the Shekinah glory falling down, uh, lighting the fire, so to speak. So Jesus is building a new temple, a new tabernacle, but within Himself. He is the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice made once and for all, and we are to be the temple lights like he was, like he is. He is the holy place light of the world like we should be. Now, just to have a touch of fun here, because we've moved from the altar to the holy place, that means there's one more section of the temple. Will we ever enter into the Holy of Holies? And I want you to think about what, what the very next section of Matthew here is. It starts in verse 17. It's when Jesus starts talking. Yeah, I'm going to read it. But do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and again, do you see this is all framed within the kingdom? Verses 1, verses 2 through 20, or 3 through 20, are all about the kingdom of heaven. This is section 1 of Jesus' sermon. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, verse 20, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it is from there, starting in verse 21, that Jesus begins the next section. You have heard it say, but I say to you. That's when all those series comes. So verses 17 through 20 is connected with the salt and the light. Now think about it. In verse 13, we were at the altar with the salt. Then Jesus structurally brings us from the altar into the holy place where we were with the lights and lamps. Remember, remember Jesus talks about lighting a lamp in a house that all may see. He's, he literally calls it a lamp. <laughs> His covenant relationship with him. Well, there were lampstands in the holy place that brought light to the entire house, to, to all that could be entered into. Now in verses 17 through 20, what do we see? We see the law. We see the commandments of God. We see that the Father is the King we're now in the holy, the holy of holies. Jesus has brought us from the salt of the altar to the light of the holy place, now to the commandments of the throne. Remember, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, were the commandments written in stone. And not one of those laws were going to be replaced until Jesus had fulfilled them. And so from verses 13 through 20, Jesus has taken us from the salt of the altar to the light of the holy place to the eternal word, the throne of God in the holy of holies. Again, as Jesus is the temple of God, as he's the salted lamb without spot and blemish at the altar, and he is the light of the world in the holy place. So Jesus is also one with the Father. Remember, remember, he says, I and the Father are one. So again, Jesus is instituting a whole new temple system, but within himself. 
And as we partake of the Lord's Supper and as we come to faith in him, we become one with the temple. We are the new temple of God. We are, we are one with the Father as he is one with the Father. That's, that's Jesus' prayer and his high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, and so again, this is, this is profound and beautiful. Um, secondly, uh, what I want to talk about is if God's people, the church, are to Ephesians 5, be imitators, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we are to live like salted living sacrifices like Jesus was, then it makes sense that we would also be lights like Jesus was. Remember, the scriptures say that Jesus is the light of the world. So in a way, we are to be a light to the world in, in the way that he was a light to the world. Listen to what 1 John 1 through 1 verses 5 through 10 says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are to be a people of the light. A people who shine and bring the illumination of the gospel of the kingdom wherever we go. Because the world is full of darkness. We are to shine as he shined. Shun. <laughs> I also think about what God said through his prophet Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And Matthew talks about this in the opening chapters, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And Jesus brought light to the region of Galilee and to some of the Samaritans, and to a few Gentiles. But Jesus' ministry primarily was to the Jewish people. But then Jesus ascended and sent us his Holy Spirit. And it is our job, it is our job now to go forth and to shine into dark places. It is our job to reach people who have walked in darkness and to tell them of the light of life. Uh, you know, one of the one of the stories I'm I'm thinking about is the parable of the banquet. If you remember that story, um, a master of a house prepares a banquet, a feast, and he goes out. And he goes into the town, and he sends a servant. He sends a servant, and the servant goes and says, ha, the master is ready, the banquet is ready. And the the first guy says, I forget if it's the first or second guy, the first guy says, ah, I've just bought a parcel of land. I need to be excused so I can go make sure it's okay. And that's a ridiculous thing because you'd never buy. It's like saying, I bought a house. I need to go make sure it's okay. <laughs> like you would never buy a house before you first had examined it. Uh, and then the second guy, or maybe it's the first guy, maybe I got the first two switched, but the second guy 
says, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I can't attend the banquet. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go make sure, you know, that they have feet or <laughs> I need to make sure they're okay, uh, which is a ridiculous thing. It's an excuse. It's not real. Uh, and so uh, the, the servant goes to the third guy and the third guy says, ah, I just got married. I'm busy with my wife right now. Essentially saying I'm in the middle of procreating. I can't come. Uh, so he's terribly rude and it's escalating in rudeness. Uh, and so the servant comes back to the master and he's distraught and he's upset and the master is infuriated and the master's infuriated not be, and this is one of the things that drove me nuts about the new cho chosen, uh, thing. They built this whole story off of this parable, uh, and they completely missed the point of it. Um, the master's furious, not because he's a loose cannon, but because this is an obvious rejection of the Messiah, the obvious rejection of his invitation. And so he says, fine, go out into the streets and gather the crippled, the lame, the blind, which is, you know, it's Jesus's parable. And they're brought in, but there's still room at the festival, at the feast. And he says, go into the highways and byways and gather the foreigners. And that's a picture of the Gentiles. That's a picture of us. Uh, and so when, when, when Jesus ascended and the Spirit came, it was time for the highways and byways. It was time for the people who dwelt in darkness to see that great light. And, you know, the reality is, is Acts chapter 2 ends that God was adding to the number of the church daily. And that continues all the way through the book. And you know what? That continues today with us. We are the lights to be brought, sent into the darkness. And every day Christ is adding to his church. And it is our job, our job to go into the highways and byways. And to bring this beautiful, beautiful light, light of the world into dark places. So with that, let's pray. Um, and we'll uh, we'll get moving for today. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that uh, you be with us and protect us. And uh, God, we pray that you continue to heal my back. Thank you that it feels a little better today. Be with Rob, God, who's still at the hospital. And Paula, God, give her strength. God, we pray for all the sicknesses in church. And God, I pray that you be with Terry Shaw today. God, we ask that when your time comes, God, that you would take her home, but do not let her be in too much discomfort, we pray. Please be with us now, protect us now, be with our country, and we do pray for revival. And in Jesus' name, God, help us to shine. Amen. I love you all so much. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.